0: As you're being seated, let me ask you a question. How many of you remember the song Cats in the Cradle? Okay, a number of you. Do you guys remember that song? You were just talking about that song? Okay. Sitting at a coffee shop talking about You were singing? You were singing? You know, there are so many things I would like to say right now. But I'm not so sure they... Well, I won't. That song, Cats in the Cradle, if you're not familiar with it, it's a song, it was a secular song, that was about um, a father and a son. And uh, the father was uh, a businessman who was very, very busy with his work. And uh, the, the song was used extensively by... Uh, James Dobson, you remember Focus on the Family? He used that song quite a bit to demonstrate a principle that's quite true. And uh, what happened in, in the song was the, the, the son kept asking the father, would you play with me and would you spend time with me? And the father said, oh, yes, I will, as soon as I get. And then it would either be a trip that he would have to take or or something else. And then the time comes when now the father wants to be connected with his son. And uh, the son says, Dad, I'll, I'll be glad to do that. But just as soon as I, and then whatever business he had to take care of. And then the father makes this realization. He says, what I've learned is he has grown up to be just like me. Just like me. Now that might frighten some of you, especially in light of your parents. Have you ever wondered about, have you grown up to be like your parents or have you been scared when you find yourself being like your parents, saying the, the same things that they used to say? Go wash your hands. Why? Because I said so. You, have you ever been down that road? None of you? Well, okay, then I'll go on. Okay. There is a, a statement that someone made. I don't know who made this statement, but I agree with it. It's very, very good. The best safeguard for the younger generation is a good example by the older generation. One of the realities is we learn to live by the examples we see. Now, added to the example of what happens within the home is also the example of what happens to young people at school, what happens through the media, through television, through films, through songs that people sing. And as a result of that, the example that we're often exposed to is not such a good example. Yet, when Paul addresses the believers, he takes us into a realm that is a realm of debt. Um, How many of you have entered the the new year in debt? Okay. (laughs) I saw one put two hands up. Um, I imagine that's, that's serious debt. Um, Actually, all of you should have raised your hands. All of you. Because we all have a, a debt to pay. There's nothing we can pay for our salvation. But there is a debt of love that we owe because of what Christ did for us. And when we came to the 12th chapter of Romans... We began to see just how extensive that debt really is. And that debt needs to be paid by every follower of Christ. If you'll remember in the first verses, the first 10-11 verses of Romans 12, we, we found that the Lord told us that we have a debt to one another. We call it an IOU. And it's IOU, an effective ministry. Because if I've trusted Christ as my Savior, God has given me spiritual gifts that I am to use for your benefit, for building you up in the faith, and you have the same opportunity with whatever spiritual gifts God has given to you to benefit others. I owe you. You owe me. You owe each other an effective ministry. And then we came to this 12th verse which opened up With let love be without hypocrisy. And there's another debt that I owe. I owe you sincere love. Not a hypocritical love. Not a love that's just lip service. But a love that actually demonstrates a desire to see the very, very best in your life. So, I'm indebted. Now I come to another debt. And I read this. Abhor what is evil, and I begin to recognize that my response to that becomes an issue of an example to others, then the way we live is also an example to others. Consequently, I owe you an effective, a positive example. And the first part of that example is to abhor what is evil. In some translations, I believe we have the word hate what is evil. It's the idea of being repulsed. I owe you an effective example. A positive example. When Paul addressed this, he wrote this in such a way that he tells us the processes that that's going to involve. And the first process, and I regret, I do not have the uh, outline. For some reason, I thought I had it. I, it was in my computer, but it disappeared and, and all this other stuff. So I'll, I'll just give you these. If, you're, if you take the notes, then you can, you can add these. The, the first example that we have is that this is a continuous process. To hate evil is not hit and miss. It is a process that is written in the present tense which means that at this point in my life and at this point in my life and at this point in my life I am to abhor, to hate that which is evil. Anything that is contrary to the nature of God to the will of God to what he has revealed to us through his word is to be hated. Continuously, not continually, continuously, the pattern of our lives. And then we're told about another dimension of that, which is a thoughtful process. Because here's what is really a difficulty about the things that are evil. Evil things are often attractive, aren't they? Things things that really ought not be part of the believer's life. I'll have people say to me sometimes, Pastor, why is it that it seems that everything that's really fun and good is wrong? Have you ever heard people say that? Well, that's really a terrible statement to make because it's not true. But there are things that are attractive. You remember how the Lord said, There is pleasure in sin for a season. And so he tells us, Anything that is evil can have accompany with it a pleasurable response, a pleasurable experience for a time. And so it isn't the matter of attractiveness which causes us to hate what is evil. It's a decision of the mind that is based upon what we know. I know that there are some things that are evil and that are wrong. They are clearly identified for me in God's Word. There are some things that ought to have no place in the life of a follower of Christ. And as a parent, many of you who are parents or grandparents or whatever the case might be, you have accepted the responsibility to raise your children understanding the difference between right and wrong. Is that not a good objective? Isn't that a good goal? So that your kids know this is right and this is wrong. And so you have that responsibility. And and by the way, sometimes for parents, that's a little bit hard to do because you'd rather be your child's friend. God never called you to be their friend. He called you to be their parent. To instruct them. To show them what is right and what is wrong. And you should do that through your mouth and also... By your example. If you tell the kids that something is wrong, but you wind up doing it, you know what they think. This is all hypocrisy. What, what's the point of this? If you, you, th- this is one of the things that has me a little bit crazy about movie ratings. Alright? PG-13. If you're 13 or over, this is okay for you to see. But if you're younger than that, then it's not Okay? Well, if it's not okay for the little ones, why is it okay for the older ones? What makes it okay? Or an R-rated film. Kids watch what you do. They watch the places you go. They watch the... They listen to the words that you say. And they are impacted in their lives by your decisions. That's why abhorring evil is such a thoughtful process. I have to know what it is that evil does that causes it to be so wrong. We know that anything that is evil is contrary to the nature of God. But think about this. If I know that what I do causes the Holy Spirit to grieve, should I do that? See, I, I know this. That... When I commit an act of sin, I cause the Holy Spirit to grieve. We call that, what, what, what believers will say is this, when I have a deep sense of the grief that I've caused the Holy Spirit, I am convicted of my sin. Have you ever heard that terminology? You, you, you've heard that. You, you know how people use that. That's really not correct. Because the only thing that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts of is of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that's in relationship to unbelievers. He convicts an unbeliever of their sin. He convicts them of the need to be righteous before God. And he convicts them of judgment that's coming if they do not achieve or accept that righteousness. And he convinces the mind... For an individual to come to know Christ as Savior. That's what the word convict means. It means to convince the mind. So if that is not appropriate for a believer... What then is that issue that makes you feel all churny inside? What is it that causes you to say, you know what, I really feel badly about that decision I made. I feel terrible about the way I spoke to that person. I know that what I did here was wrong and I just feel awful about it. You have caused the Holy Spirit of God grief. And you feel His grief. Because He dwells within the believer. And so when He's grieved... You know it. You understand. He has been offended and he has been grieved. That's the cost of evil. It is is something that causes the Holy Spirit to be grieved. There's something else you need to know about evil. It can't deliver what it promises. Evil has a way of promising things that it cannot deliver. If I could just have that person for myself. And the husband goes off with a woman that's not his wife. And he says, you know what? Now that I've had her, I find myself no more satisfied than I was before. See, sin doesn't satisfy. There's always got to be more. And more and more. When you think about the cost of sin, when you think about not abhorring evil, you cause the Holy Spirit to grieve, you find yourself never satisfied, you find that the sin itself is of a temporary nature as far as ability to deliver satisfaction, and You look at the cost of what it did to the person of Jesus Christ. Why do you think Christ went to the cross? He went there because of my sin. He went there because of your sin. And you think about the blood that Christ shed and torture of his body that occurred and you think about the cost of sin and you say to yourself this may seem so attractive right now but look what it cost Christ look what my Savior had to pay in order to deal with this sin that I am so inclined to follow I don't want to be part of that I hate that which put Christ on the cross. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that way? You see, being able to abhor evil doesn't mean that the attractiveness of evil does not draw you in. It does to anyone. What it means is to understand What that means. It means Christ went to the cross. It means it cannot satisfy. It means every time I do it, I grieve the Holy Spirit. That's pretty nasty stuff. Therefore, I abhor what is evil. Is it attractive? Of course it is. Of course it is. But you have to overcome that attractiveness with what you know. There's a third element that Paul introduces us to. And that is that it's a thorough process. And I want you to go with me as we look at a, a, a couple different passages of Scripture. Let me, let me back up again. One of the things that, that comes to mind every once in a while involves things in which we have been misinstructed. How many of you are familiar with the verse, Abstain from all appearance of evil? Okay. Is that all? I I really want to know, how many of you know the verse, abstain from all appearance of evil? Okay, oh my, that's less than what I had expected. My guess is this, if I were to ask each one of you who are familiar with that verse, what does that mean? Here is probably the definition that I would get back. It means that I am not supposed to do anything that makes it look like I am doing something evil. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And people have used that to say, well, uh, I should not go... I'm going to back it up now because this this isn't in effect anymore today. I should never go to a restaurant that has a bar. Do any of you remember those days? Okay. You you remember? If you were raised in a conservative Christian home, you never went to a restaurant that had a bar. Because it gave the appearance of evil. That you're going in there, and you're going in there to get drunk, and all this other stuff. Which is not what that verse is talking about. And quite frankly, how many restaurants can you go to today that don't have a bar? McDonald's. Okay. Chick-fil-A. chick fil as is a good one. Alright, well, I hadn't anticipated your responding with all those... What? Cracker Barrel? Taco Bell? We're, we're talking about all the finer restaurants that people can go to. And I understand the thought behind that. I, I, I was raised in that environment and, and we embraced those rules which today I recognize were really not a matter of making you a more spiritual Christian at all. But... We do need to determine what that means, that verse. When the, and, and in fact, I think this. If you're carrying a, uh, a new King James translation, I think they got this right. Abstain from, all, from evil in all its forms. That's what that means. Not the appearance of evil. I won't walk into a place that's a bar because people think that I'm in there getting drunk. No, no, that's not what it means. It means that every form of evil should be left behind. And the reason it's said that way is because it's really easy to despise, to abhor certain evils and to be willing to accept others. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Look at this. In Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, we read this about the church at Ephesus. In Revelation 2, beginning at verse 2, it says this, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Drop down a little bit farther. Look at the church at Pergamum in verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality." Go on further. Look at the church at Thyatira in verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Do you get the picture? The Lord is not pleased with half a commitment. It's one thing to hate certain kinds of evil, but not to hate other kinds of evil. Let's bring it home. Do you hate abortion? Maybe some of you don't. I wish you would. You should. Do you hate abortion? Do you hate lust? Do you hate murder? Do you hate gossip? Do you hate stealing? Do you hate malice? Do you understand what I'm saying? Just like the Lord gave accolades to the churches at Ephesus and at Pergamum and at Thyatira, and He said, these are the great things that you're doing, but you also... And then he names things that they're doing that they ought not be doing. And here's where we fall into this problem. To abhor evil means to hate it in all of its forms. It means I'm not going to listen to things I ought not listen to. I'm not going to go places I ought not go. I'm not even going to hold attitudes I ought not hold. I'm not going to say things I should not say. Abstain from all appearance of evil. That's abhorring evil. Then, he tells us this, that this is a withdrawing process as well. Let me, let me say this very quickly. Go back in your Bibles once again to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. What we're going to learn is abhorring evil is not an emotional response. It is an intellectual, a volitional response. Here's what the Lord warns us about in the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. When a person does not decide to withdraw from the temptations that are bringing evil, it is easy to walk with those temptations and then to stand with them and finally to sit with them. It means essentially this. If you do not withdraw from the things that are tempting you to do anything contrary to the nature of God, it is merely a matter of time until you are completely drawn into those and consumed by them. And it becomes harder and harder and harder to abhor evil. Because what you'll find is that there is pleasure in sin for a season. The follower of Christ says, I withdraw. And you have examples. You, re, you remember how uh, Joseph fled from the temptations that had come his way. And, and you have examples throughout the Scripture of individuals who, who chose rather to leave than to allow themselves to be engulfed in the, the mire of sin and temptation. It's a fleeing response process, withdrawing process. And then here's the last thing I want to point out to you. When the Lord gives us those four words, abhor what is evil. That is a protective process. Do you believe that God loves you? All right, let's do it this way. Do you all believe that God loves you? Do you believe, do you believe that God loves you? Yes. Okay. Do you believe that God loves you? Okay. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? I did not hear yeses from this side. That's alright. We'll take time to explain how much he loves you when we talk about how he sent his son to die for you. If he genuinely loves you, do you understand that his directive to abhor evil is for your good? It is for your good. And then, if you abhor what is evil, you conform to the plan and the purpose that he has for you. Do you know what his plan is for everyone? I I can tell you God's will for every person in this room. Now some of you, younger people, you want to know God's will for who you should marry. Right? These couples down here not trying to embarrass you guys are you always that red that's, that's always one of the big issues uh, where to go to college uh, what occupation to have um, what car to buy the will of God for every person in this room is be ye holy for I the Lord your God I cannot be holy if I don't hate what is evil. Do you know what? I owe you. I owe you an effective example that is demonstrated in such a way that I live my life to show you evil is something I abhor. By the way, You owe me that too. Father, thank you that we could spend this time in your word. And I thank you for the truth that you have given us in this this brief, brief message. Abhor what is evil. Father, give us a sensitivity to anything that is contrary to your word. And give us the courage and the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to carry out those things which we know to be true. Thank you for what you're going to do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.